the kinds of sounds you'd expect to have on a poetry podcast is someone scraping the bottom of a Tupperware. (laughs) (laughs) Too real. Too real. (laughs) Asia, what is this podcast? What's it called? What do we do? I don't know, Sean. What is this podcast? I've kind of forgotten in the year (laughs) off that we've had. Um, Yeah. Oh, wait, it's Black Box Poetry. Welcome back to Black Box Poetry. This is Black Box Poetry. I'm Anastasia Nicholas, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Rochester. And I'm joined here by my two colleagues, comrades at arms. Sean, why don't you introduce yourself first, since you uh, reminded me what we were doing here today. I'm Sean Hughes. I uh, study Victorian uh, poetry and other kinds of literature. And I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and a translator of Russian and Ukrainian. So now that we've tried to remember what it is we do here, what are we like actually doing today? (laughs) Well, today we're talking about translated poetry, which can be difficult because translators of poetry are very distracting because of their erudition and sexual (laughs) magnetism. So it can be hard to talk about their work. That's definitely the problem. It's rough. Yeah. 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 Also, add the layer of mystery because you don't speak their language, and now you're, like, really into it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're, like, the bad boy, but they're also the steady guy because they've acquired the linguistic erudition. Yeah. No, I mean, you're faced with an unrealistic fantasy. Acknowledging all of all of those major issues, I would say another a, a minor issue, this is much, much, like, tertiary at best, would be that it, it brings you to the heart of what poetry is and the sort of difficulties of, of understanding the difference between what is conveyed by a language and what the language itself is doing. But that's way, way less significant than uh, the whole animal magnetism part. Absolutely. <laughs> well, tertiary though it is, you raise a good point, and it's one that both consumers of translated poetry and producers of translated poetry encounter where you find yourself wondering to what extent am I responding to a particular poem and to what extent am I responding to how the language this poem is written in differs architecturally from the language I'm translating it into. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to forget when you're translating that uh, primarily you have to be translating the poem that's in front of you rather than trying to translate the sort of architectural distinctiveness of the source language into the target language. Although you wind up doing some of that too. I like the way that you talked about that you sometimes you forget one for the other. That's a nice way to put it, Isaac. So Isaac, as you can tell, is talking from, for anybody who's listening at home, the rest of us, Sean and I know this, Isaac's always talking from the position of a translator, but that's worth remembering for you guys for this episode. And I will disclose now that I am also the poetry editor at a literary translation um, independent press called Open Letter Books. We're great. It's really awesome. But we publish one book of poetry a year. So I will say that's like my little my little plug. I will disclose I'm coming from that background, even though I am not a practicing translator myself. And I have no credibility on this topic. None, not even a you little You do bit. because <laughs> your poetic animal magnetism, Sean. Claim well, it. Well, no, Claim we, it. we established earlier that it's, it's translators who have the animal magnetism. <laughs> I, uh, you know. As nah, a, you get a poet in the right scarf with the right moleskin. There's some magnetism there. I do have a very good scarf, as you all know. Um, you do. So, uh, yeah, there's... Definitely, like, some uh, ways in which anybody who studies language or literature has to encounter questions of translation. And so I have put some thought into this, but I will have to, by and large, defer to my more esteemed colleagues. 
Um, I would disagree. Well, I second your disagreement. I think it's uh, the key thing I always think about as a translator is that I work for my reader. That's my sort of go-to slogan that you'll hear me say anytime I talk about translation, and all I should assume about them is that they are a thoughtful person who understands the target language. That's the only thing I should ever assume about my reader, and trying to set anything beyond that as the price of admission often really makes translation insular when it's meant to be the opposite. Yeah, I think I would add to that. When I first met you guys, when we were when, I, when we were in college, I generally shied away from any poetry or, link, or literature in translation in general, because I felt like I was doing a disservice to the original language if I couldn't read the original language and was only reading the English. But since then, my mind has been changed a lot about that because... Otherwise, you just never have access to all of these voices. And really what you're doing, if you set yourself up away from anything that's been in translation, is a type of ethnocentrism where you don't have any access to any other voices or experiences or languages. One thing that really helped me realize that, right, this is a statistic that gets bandied about a lot, is that 3% of all literature uh, in published in English is in translation. That number is like infinitely higher in every other country in the world, infinitely. Um, Most other countries publish closer to like, even as much as 50% of their literature published each year is in translation. Only 3% in the United States is in translation, and that hasn't really changed over the last 10 to 15 years. And only 16% of that 3% is poetry in translation. So let me run that through again. 3% of all all literature published in the United States is in translation, And of that 3%, 16% of that 3% is literature, is poetry and translation. I'm honestly impressed that poetry made it up to 16. I was shocked too. I did the numbers three times. (laughs) This is in the last, this is using, um, this is using Publishers Weekly's database. Um, Publishers Weekly has a database of all literature and translation since 2008. And you can go through and kind of check. I'll be peppering some more statistics in because I have these at my fingertips at the moment. So, um, but yeah, I think one of the things that's really useful about reading poetry and translation is to just approach it as poetry, right? Like just like you would any other poem we ever approach. It's came out of a meteor from the sky and you have to figure it out. This meteor just might have originally come. You might know which country this one came from. Yeah, but you can you can detect uh, radiation and minerals that are typically found in the rings of Saturn or China, so you can make vague guesses about where it's coming from. But at the end of the day, it's still a meteor. (laughs) I do like the idea of, like, Alexandrian wavelengths, and, like, you'll just sort of be like, wait a minute, this was written in, uh, this was written in French. (laughs) (laughs) These lines are much too long to have been written in, uh, in German or Italian. Exactly. With, with Russian, that's, uh... Ness. If you see a lot of Ness, you know you're dealing with a Russian poem. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fun. All right. It sounds like we need to get into the poems. Yeah, guys. let's just let's get into a let's get a poem in front of us. I think we're starting. I think we decided off offset off screen uh, that we're going to start with my poem. Um, I'm bringing. I brought a contemporary poet. Um, her name is Kim Hyun, uh, and she's translated by Don Mi Choi. She's still alive. She's like 60, late 50s. She lives in South Korea. Um, And we're reading Red Scissors Woman. I picked this poem because none of the three of us know any languages in the Korean language family. 
Um, so we don't even, the alphabet even looks like is completely foreign for us. Um, and I picked this one because she's also still alive. I also picked this one because it's a woman translated by a woman. And for just one more statistic of literature and translate, and this is the same across fiction and prose and in poetry, about 20% of all literature and translation is female writers translated by female translators. Um, only about 33%, about a third of all literature is female authors. So the vast majority of literature in translation is men, is male authors. So it's worth noting, there's a Women in Translation Month that's in the fall. It's worth noting and picking up uh, that there's not a lot of women who get translated. So shout out to the ladies. So here's a little Kim Hyesoon. That woman who walks out of the gynecology clinic. Next to her is an old woman holding a newborn. That woman's legs are like scissors. She walks swift, swift, cutting the snow path. But the swollen scissor blades are like fat, dark clouds. What did she cut screaming with her raised blades? Blood-scented dusk flooding out from between her legs. The sky keeps tearing the morning after the snowstorm. A blind flash of light follows the waddle, waddling woman. Heaven's lid glimmers and opens then closes. How scared God must have been when the woman who ate all the fruit of the tree he'd planted was cutting out each red body from between her legs. The sky, the wound that opens every morning when a red head is cut out between the fat red legs of the cloud. Does that blood live inside me? Do I live inside that blood? That woman who walks ahead, that woman who walks and rips with her scorching body, her cold shadow. Newborn infants swim inside that woman's mirror inside her, as white as a snow room. The sticky, sticky, slow breaking waves of blood, like the morning sea filled with fish. I think we just need to go through this poem in a linear way and talk about how awesome it is for a, for a minute here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, one of the things that's really striking about this is how it so sort of deftly builds on existing similes. So, like, the woman leaving the gynecology clinic next to her is an old woman holding a newborn. That woman's legs are like scissors. She walks swift, swift, cutting the snowpath, which is sort of like giving us a, a way of sort of reading the, the first simile. So we're starting with legs like scissors, and we could take a lot of things from that, but the first suggestion is, okay, imagine that she's cutting a path with her scissor, her scissor legs, and then it's, but the swollen scissor blades are like fat, dark clouds, <laughs> which what? is a really wonderful distortion, because in order to imagine the first part of the simile, you almost need to imagine that the legs are sharp. And we tend to think of things that are sharp as being, you know, acute. And then to go from that to something that is described as being amorphous, you know, uh, not even sort of solid, is a real, a real escalation of the kind of like, you know, mental demands the poem is making on us. What did she cut screaming with Which, her raised blades, blood scented dusk flooding out from beneath her between her legs? It's sort of savagely curtailing how much 
of the kinship between the two ideas connected by the simile you're supposed to actually use. Initially, you have this big, broad channel between these two ideas that you're invited to cross, but then it's a very abstract, very sort of rarefied and condensed similarity that it's being reduced to. It also does all these moves where, like, the significance of the images keep getting altered by the things that are put next to them, which is kind of the opposite of snipping something. The opening gambit of this poem is to, you know, have us imagine, you know, sort of decisive breaks. And I think that the sort of scene of someone leaving a gynecology clinic, the scene of someone sort of uh, moving through the snow, cutting a path, has this cleaving quality to it. But then we also have images like not only the the fat, dark clouds, but right after that blood-scented dusk flooding out from between her legs. So not only the legs, but also what's flooding out of them have this sort of amorphous, dusky, dark quality. And that also, in some ways, is drawing qualities from the snow that she's moving through, which, though it's not dark necessarily, unless it's, you know, uh, in New Jersey, and there's a lot of car exhaust, (laughs) it's probably white. (laughs) But it is this sort of, like, cloudy, thick material. So all these, like, qualities keep hopping around from one thing to another. That was amazing, guys. Your quick loss of those first three stanzas was really, really beautiful. That was what it, part of what drew me to the poem, was the way that the metaphors kind of like fall in on themselves. But the other thing that I noticed while you guys were just talking about it was the way that the that's operate in the poem. That's really clever. Um, the way that the, the... So the first two lines are that woman who walks out of the gynecology clinic. Next to her is an old woman holding a newborn. That woman's legs are like scissors. So the way that the, the that woman and that woman's legs... It's interesting because that woman's legs should grammatically go back to the old woman, right? But I actually think it's, but it goes both, it's both, right? Because you're supposed to also pair the that woman with that woman's legs. And so instead of saying like the woman with the red hat or like the woman with the green scarf, the like the way that we're noticing or linking these characters in the poem is by by this part of speech instead. And it's a part of speech that we like we do say this or that one, but it's functioning a little bit differently here. It's making me think differently about it. What's so generative about that observation is that it in some ways matches a weird feeling that the poem as a whole gives you, which is on one level, this is such a particularizing moment. You know, it's, it's piling up description and the description is so strange and uncanny that it feels like this, you know, could never happen, but at most it could happen once. On the other hand, in this poem that makes you feel like this is this, you know, weird, rarefied moment, it also is effacing the things that we would normally use to particularize people. It's really unclear, you know, how we could even imagine uh, who is this woman or who are either of these two women, except that one is older. And yet it also seems to sort of demand of us that we're, we're sort of fixating on a particular person who's having a particularly visceral experience. So it's a, it's a really weird quality where grammatically as well as narratively or imagistically, the poem is simultaneously like demanding that we particularize and also making it so difficult to do so. So the next move in the poem is we move from kind of this descriptive moment in the first three stanzas um, and we actually get a sense of time the next stanza, right? The, the sky keeps tearing the morning after the snowstorm. So it does give us that narrative shift that you're starting to kind of suggest, Sean, that we're supposed to kind of, we're moving from like a studied, focused, descriptive moment that's like still 
making us think through these metaphors and now we're supposed to move somehow through time or that's like that's the trick we've moved out of the description for a second to change and the the poem kind of changes its tack at that point right well i think that's uh setting us up for the gesture later in the poem where it sort of broadens and becomes religious or mythological because we have the morning after we have the reference to time and we have the invoking of the idea of uh, containment and enclosure with the uh, heaven's lid glimmers open and then closes. We're introducing the idea of the enclosed spaces that's going to be so critical later. I, I, I view this stanza as very much equipping the reader to get to what comes after on the basis of this particularity that we had in the first three stanzas. Yeah. And it is a, it is a, an astonishing transition that we're making. So, I mean, like at one level, it's a very concrete image. So what does it mean to say the sky keeps tearing the morning after the snowstorm? Uh, You know, one imagines that it's a, you know, hazy winter morning and there are breaks in the cloud cover that light is shining through. But also that's described as heaven's lid glimmering, which is already sort of setting us up for a sky god. It is a particular kind of like vision of the heavens. And then with that, in the next stanza, it has this reference that seems to be towards, or it's at least reminiscent of the Garden of Eden story. It's also possible there's something else being referenced that I'm not familiar with. And on the other side of that stanza, we get the sky, the wound that opens every morning when a red head is cut out between the fat red legs of the cloud is in one sense a repeat of the sort of transition to the sky. It's, you know, the the sunrise is like the red head coming out of the legs of the clouds, but also it seems to have so absorbed the earlier imagery of the poem that this has kind of displaced the image of the uh, ocular, you know, sky god looking down on us uh, with something that's much more bodily and visceral. I think the image of the lid that you pointed to in the fourth stanza is after the fact irradiated by these issues because it suggests the god being kept in the heavens rather than kept out of somewhere else. It sort of makes the heavens that contain this god a an enclosed space in the way that the poem is going to be preoccupied by later. Heaven's lid means that heaven is the circumscribed space rather than the earth being finite and heaven being infinite heaven has a lid that makes heaven a jar yeah i really like that the way you added that isaac because that also works well when you get down that the sky the wound that opens every morning right because the sky goes from being a lid as like a divider between heaven and earth or something like that but a wound also is an interesting way to think of a divider because normally we think of a wound as something that like punctures between like through a a divider But in a weird way, the wound could be the divider itself. If you instead you're thinking of like the outside world from the interior of the body, if you're thinking of a wound being some kind of like almost like a river or like a gulf or something that needs to be crossed. And there's like some other kind of world happening within the wound between these two worlds or something like it really makes you shift what is kind of keeping away from what or something. I'm sorry, that sounds crazy. I also do want to just go back for a second that Heaven's Lid in that fourth stanza 
when it refers back three lines earlier to the sky keeps tearing the morning after the snowstorm, this is a really clever moment, right? Because it's tearing, but it's also tearing the morning after the snowstorm. You have to get both. Um, And that's a really, really slick translation choice because it would have been, it's slick in the English. It's very slick. It's really clever. It works both ways. You need the tear because that reminds you of the scissors cutting. You need the tear because that's how eyes work. (laughs) Um, But you get both. And that's a really lovely moment where the translator made a really interesting choice. Um, I would love, right, that's like a, a thing that we don't get to know. How does that work in the Korean but honestly, mm-hmm. I don't care. It's so good in the English. I don't give a shit how it works in the Korean. Yeah, and that's what a successful poetry translation should yeah. do. Absolutely. So, yeah. kudos, Don Mi Choi. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the many moments in this poem. I, I hadn't noticed those two aspects of it, but that is really remarkable. And there are certain things about this that really gain your confidence in the translator. I mean, I think mm-hmm. perhaps one of them is that the handling of sound is so impressive. And again, this is a case where we, we don't know, you know, whether this has a corollary in the original Korean, but it's because it's handled so effectively in the target language, it does sort of win you a certain kind of respect for the translator, which, you know, suggests that this is a good translation of whether or not we know if it's accurate. We don't do a ton of secondary sources on this podcast, and rightly so, but I have to go to uh, an excellent... uh, Translators' introductions are generally not essential reading, but Emily Wilson's introduction to her translation of The Odyssey raises a point that is essential for the question you're talking about. She describes how she doesn't want her translation to be transparent. She doesn't view transparency as a goal for a translator to strive towards. Rather, she wants the literary artifice of the translation to be completely apparent to the reader. And I I really think that's a much wiser way to approach a translation than to attempt to make the reader forget that what they're encountering is a translation. Yeah. Yeah. And this is related to the point you were making initially, Anastasia, about the frequency with which female authors are are translated and the frequency with which uh, women work as translators. Uh, Emily Wilson views that as a gendered issue as well because the metaphors around translation are so often gendered. There's the... uh, the question of faithfulness and fidelity, the sort of subordination of the translator to the authorial vision. And even on the level of uh, translators are described as the handmaidens of literature, especially in the 19th century. And as a, as a uh, Slavicist, I very much encounter that in my particular corner of the translation world, just because it was Constance Garnett who made so many of the Russian classics available to English readers. Yeah. So I think the uh, what, you, what you're describing there, Sean, of the translator sort of earning some credibility, I think is very much an Emily Wilson move of uh, get the reader to accept that they're going to experience this virtuosity. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I just want to pick up something that you said a second ago about the artifice, Isaac. I'm, I feel like I'm like going back three steps from what you were just saying and we will pick everything back up. But I wanted to go back to what you were saying about the fact that you do want to encounter some artifice in a translation. Um, 
you don't want full transparency. You want to know that what you're working with, I think I like, I want to dig into that for one more second, because I think that's really interesting when you're dealing with poems and it doesn't matter whether it's poems in translation or poems in, in your, like in a language that you read fluently. The thing that's interesting about poems is that they are artifice, right? There is an architecture. There were a lot of decisions made to render an effect and I think one of the things that translation sometimes actually makes more available is it makes that artifice even more present. I know I can learn a lot more about reading in English if I can see a poem and actually see the source language next to each other. And even if I can't, I don't know the source language, language as in this case, I can see that there were decisions made here to render an idea that I might not understand otherwise. And that I think actually constantly reminds me that the point of poetry isn't to just get an idea across as quickly as possible. That's what text messages are for. The point of a poem is to make you like figure out why words have meaning. Yeah. So figure out what that artifice is that's being structured so that we get meaning out of it. And and often the only way a poem can do that is by protracting the process of making sense of an utterance so that you have to watch it mean instead of getting straight to the meaning. As as you say, we'll 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 pick everything up, but you you've raised a a point I want to touch on about where you can see the translator making meaningful decisions. The one that struck me the most was in this uh this amazing third stanza. What did she cut screaming with her raised blades? There's, there's no question mark to make that a question, but we all experienced it as a question, and at the at the risk of an accidental pun, we, we still let it bleed into the following line. Mm-hmm. We have, what did she cut screaming with her raised blades? Line break. Blood-scented dusk flooding out from between her legs. In English, you would demand a question mark there, typically, but this works a lot better the way it's written because it enables these two images to exist in opposition to each other without a question mark breaking that process. Yeah. And in a way, I think the the moment when the poem does most decisively split in two is further down where we have two questions that are actually punctuated uh, and in parentheses. So most of the poem is unpunctuated. And that creates a lot of these interesting effects, like the one that Asia was talking about earlier with the two that womans. It's a little slippery or ambiguous whether it's the same that woman or whether the second that woman is supposed to refer to the old woman next to the first that woman. Um, And also like the images sort of bleeding together and inflecting each other. We have these questions, does that blood live inside me? Do I live inside that blood? And the fact that these are presented as not only two questions, each with a question mark, but they're the two questions are in separate parentheses, which in some ways allows us to think of them not as alternative answers to the same, not, not as alternative rhetorical questions, but as separate questions that are that are both being posed, that could both have an answer that exists independently. So it's not either that blood lives inside me or I live inside that blood, but it's both of, both of these questions are being posed and both sort of make their own demands on the, the speaker of the poem or the, the author of the poem. And can we just take a moment to be astonished by that stanza? I mean, that is that is a, a single single gram of antimatter blowing up our entire planet when it touches it. That is, it's unfucking believable. Well, because it's also a point where we're in some ways referring to questions about blood that are 
very familiar. And in some ways, like what's sort of remarkable about this moment is that the poem has sort of set up its own, uh, I don't know, imagery and narrative in such a way that it can now engage these familiar questions in a way that seems sort of remarkably strange. At one level, we have the sort of idea that blood is a sort of synecdoche for a, a person or for a person's essence, you know, like uh, the same blood flows in my veins as in my father's or whatever. And then on the other hand, we have the sense that our life is in some sense contained within our blood. If you think about our DNA or, you know, an earlier idea of our sort of essence. So there's this weird but very familiar idea of blood being both contained in a container and something that's both a linkage, but also sort of like the decisive product of something being broken. And what's remarkable about this poem is that it manages to sort of engage those ideas that are familiar in a way that is aggressively visceral. <laughs> it sort of like puts the blood back in the idea of bloodlines. And I, I, I got to tie that back to the, the lid of heaven. Because that the the lid of heaven is asking that question of what's inside what and what that means already. Yeah. Well, as I say, in the last stanza is doing a similar inflection where it's newborn infants swim inside that woman's mirror inside her as white as a snow room, the sticky, sticky, slow yeah. breaking waves of blood like the morning sea filled with fish. You know, we're familiar with the idea that there's similarities between the mineral makeup of our blood and the mineral makeup of seawater, and that there's a sort of continuity to life suggested by that. But it also is this sort of strange moment where you know, the tension between being contained and containing is given a real stickiness. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it's funny you went to the lid, Isaac, because I, I agree with you that that's one of our, like, that's like kind of a reference point to remind us how we got here. But I actually think another one, right, and this poem is so carefully crafted in that we get a couple of places so that we know what's coming or we're not like crazily shocked we're willing to buy in once it happens because we get the, um, the, what Sean so articulately explained earlier that it's so crazy to have legs that are scissor blades, which are sharp and acute become these dark fat clouds. So by the time we get to the idea that blood and clouds could be exchanged, could be interchanged, it's like, well, I guess so. Cause according to the logic of this poem, scissors can be clouds. So why not blood too? If scissors can be sharp, if legs can be scissors and scissors can be clouds, I guess we can invert the whole thing and blood can be clouds and blood is now white, right? The inside of her white is a snow room and the outside is red. And it just like, okay, sure. <laughs> it's using aperture metaphors because the poem does, but the hatches between the domains of meaning attached to different images that this poem prepares you to pass through are so tiny. Yeah. Just like the the faintest kinship between ideas becomes persuasive in this poem's universe just because the of that initial gesture with the scissor leg setting it up so well, giving the reader this image that they're instantly ready to accept, and then sort of retroactively replumbing the way they accepted it. It's it's really amazing. It's the way the poem itself functions has a lot in common with the way any translated poem has to function. I, I often work with a co-translator and we uh, we always say that the reader's generosity is a finite resource mm. that we spend by introducing weirdness. <laughs> and this poem spends it 
so frugally with such a spectacular return on its investment. I'm dazzled. Yeah. yeah. We are dazzled. We are so dazzled. So in some ways, we can make a perfect transition to this next poem by Arthur Rambeau, who declared that he wanted to systematically derange his senses. Here we have like a different experience of coming upon a translated poem. This is the poem After the Flood by Arthur Rambeau, and it's translated by John Ashbery. Earlier, we were dealing with a poem in a language that none of us have any familiarity with by an author who, uh, whose work we don't know especially well. And here we're coming to a poem where we have the, the most deadly temptation, which is that I know a little bit of French, but not enough to actually really be able to take advantage of it, and, and, and maybe enough to sort of get myself into some pickles and, and scrapes and screw-ups by overestimating uh, how often words that look like English words have the same meanings. <laughs> but on the other hand, this is a, a poem by a poet who I, who I really admire, translated by another poet that I really admire. So we'll see what comes of our attempts to uh, explore it. After the Flood No sooner had the notion of the flood regained its composure than a hare paused amid the gorse and trembling bellflowers and said its prayer to the rainbow through the spider's web. Oh, the precious stones that were hiding, the flowers that were already peeking out. Stalls were erected in the dirty main street, and boats were towed towards the sea, which rose in layers above as in old engravings. Blood flowed in Bluebeard's house, in the slaughterhouses, in the amphitheaters, where God's seal turned the windows livid. Blood and milk flowed. The beavers built. Tumblers of coffee steamed in the public houses. In the vast, still-streaming house of windows, children in mourning looked at marvelous pictures. A door slammed, and on the village square, the child waved his arms, understood by veins and weathercocks, everywhere in the dazzling shower. Madame X established a piano in the Alps. Mass and First Communion were celebrated at the cathedral's hundred thousand altars. The caravans left, and the splendid hotel was built amid the tangled heap of ice flows in the polar night. Since then, the moon has heard jackals cheeping in time deserts, and eclogues in wooden shoes grumbling in the orchard. Then, in the budding purple forest, Eucharist told me that spring had come. Well up pond, foam roll on the bridge and above the woods, black cloths and organs, lightning and thunder, rise and roll. Waters and sorrows rise and revive the floods. For since they subsided, oh, the precious stones shoveled under, and the full-blown flowers, so boring. And the queen, the witch, who lights her coals in the clay pot, will never want to tell us what she knows, and which we do not know. There's something that happens when you read a Rimbaud poem that makes you reluctant to attempt to interpret it. You just sort of want to throw your sword at his feet and acknowledge his superiority. <laughs> yeah. It feels exactly right that this poem is titled After the Flood, and it's not even really after the flood, it's after the notion of the flood that this all happens. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not even, it's not even a natural disaster. It's the, it's not even the idea of a natural disaster, it's the notion after oh, yeah. the notion of the flood rega regained its composure. So after the notion regained its composure, and then and then the things begin. And then the things begin. And and Rambeau has the most things. He has way more things than I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a true. Lot of things. So I want um, to respond to both of those. One, I feel like we were talking earlier about poems that or translations that flag their artifice. 
And I think this opening, no sooner had the notion of the flood regained its composure, is at one level, it's so elegantly worded that it almost sort of like pulls you into this expression that's almost impossible to even fathom what that would mean. It, I think there's something about the wording, the notion of the flood regained its composure, that almost because we have this sort of positive verb there, you know, it regained its composure. Uh, because we have the word notion as opposed to idea, which has this sort of uh, odd kind of specificity to it, it's in some sense sort of, uh, there's a, a certain kind of uh, confidence to this, like the confidence we were seeing in the translator of the previous poem, that's sort of forcing you to, to kind of recognize that you've signed on for something, let's say. <laughs> and then the other thing that I think is remarkable about this poem is it's such a study in good list building within a poem, which is to say that he really does have the most things. And this, like a good Whitman poem, manages to have lots and lots of stuff where you never have the feeling of like, oh, okay, this is a list. You're always sort of like, okay, wait, and then this, and then this. Um, it works, I think, by really different principles than Whitman does, but it's a, it's similar in that they both have this fascination with like simultaneity, like all of these things are happening at the same time, and I'm not going to give you the kinds of transitions uh, that would roadmap them for you in the way that, that you might sort of be used to, but I am going to create all of these sort of suggestions of entanglement among them so that it doesn't just feel like a kind of thudding sequence. Yeah, I I love the way you said that. List poems are like... I don't know, the devil's play thing, because it is really tempting to just like list a bunch of shit and be like, look at all this cool shit I found. And it's like totally, I, it's really dangerous poets out there. Be careful about your list poems. I had a really good teacher once tell me that like, you have to earn the items on your list. It's not like, like it's almost the exact opposite of a shopping list, right? You don't get to like, just go pick them up. You need to make that make them work for you. And this poem does that exactly as Sean, you're suggesting with that simultaneity that's also kind of a type of layering. So we get mm -hmm. it in the third stanza. Oh, the precious stones that were hiding, right? The flowers that were already peeking out. So you get this weird thing where it's like, right, the way a list generally works, it's like, oh, first this, then that. But he very carefully tells us, actually, no, I gave you the first thing, but the second thing was already there, right? Oh, the precious stones that were hiding. It should be that oh, and then I looked to the right and then there were flowers. It's like, no, no, no. The flowers were already peeking out. And you get that again a few stanzas later when you get the vast, still streaming house of windows, which house of windows, beautiful. Yeah. Children in mourning looked at marvelous pictures. You get like, to, again, you kind of have to rethink the order that the language is presented, the, like, the order of the artifice versus how this is actually happening in this like imagined world. And just to say quickly, I totally agree with that. And he is particularly a master of using tenses and also words that indicate like temporal relationships. So like just his ability to sort of to say that they were already peeking out. It's this ongoing thing that had already happened at some point in the past. He has like all of these really effective ways of stacking up different ways of situating things in time and using both those that are just part of verb structures in general, but also those that are added, you know, adverbally or uh, in other ways. Well, the, uh, the verbs, I think, sort of inevitably suggest processes is a lot of why it works so well. You have the tumblers of coffee steaming 
They this has been heated up, it's cooling down, that's why steam is escaping. You have blood that has been let and is now flowing in Bluebeard's house and the slaughterhouses and the amphitheaters. The the actions themselves suggest a quality of continuousness. Well, it's actually that example you actually got brought us to, Isaac, it's in the past tense. The beavers built tumblers of coffee steamed in the public houses and it's that kind of like present past right but then we get we get the ing verb in the next stanza in the vast still streaming house of windows so it's that really funny thing where it's you're totally right that it's like in the present it's also in the past they're stacked in this weird way and the logic of the of the poem works according to its verbs Whereas in the logic and the other one worked according to its similes being stacked on top of each other. They're really useful to read one right after the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, that's like, that's excellent. I, I think that's the point we can close on for this poem. I think that's very well said. So to conclude, we're going to look at a poem that I've translated. So previously we had a poem from a language that we have zero familiarity with to a poem where we have some familiarity with the language and with the cultural context and with the poet and with the translator. And finally, we're going to have a poem where we've got the translator available to interrogate and harangue and so forth, and we can actually find out what he's hidden away from the reader maliciously. (laughs) This is a poem by... uh, great contemporary Russian poet named Alexei Porvin. In English, I have entitled it, What Does the Train Carry Over the Border? What does the train carry over the border? The rustling of newspapers, the kind you'd wrap your lunch in, and conversations about nothing in particular that jangle like shell casings scattered by a recruit. Rummaging in the pockets for a ticket, and they spill onto the floor, dazzled first by the movement of his spotless hand, then by the midday light of truce. The empty clang of metal accustomed to containing powder with the idea of ignition. What better ticket to where your soul will be mobilized or demobilized? Where there's hunger, they send provisions, and into hushes go lingering sounds rushing out of speech and into regular rail car life, uninvolved with the war. The lavatory sink jangles, too, so insistently. Just believe that in the terminal quiet after people shed their shoulder boards and forget that they speak different languages, nothing matters except having clean hands. So one thing I'm noticing about reading this poem is that the line and the line break is much more important. That artifice, that poetic tool, is much more necessary in this poem and isn't used to the same degree in the other poems we've read so far today. The meaning of each line expands very differently based on the line that comes after it. That's a really, really lovely way that this progresses. And that's actually driven by the way Russian works. Because Russian is an inflected language and has the toolkit of endings on nouns and verbs that indicate how they function in the logic of a sentence to work with. There is a bit more freedom of word order, and it's a bit easier to follow the progress of a sentence sometimes. So what I've tried to do is 
use the tools of English poetry to do what the Russian poem is doing. I think the the most obvious example of that probably is how the poem in Russian actually doesn't have a title. Mm. Uh, I've, I've added this title, What Does the Train Carry Over the Border? Because the first two lines of the poem, if you translate them in, you know, Google Translate, completely ordinary, completely literal English, what you would get is, the train carries over the border, line break, the rustling of newspapers Mm -hmm. in which food is wrapped up. Mm -hmm. So in order to produce that same striking effect of the rustling of newspapers, this very sort of ethereal, ephemeral, abstract sound being carried by a train... I had to sequester that uh, that concept in the title mm-hmm. to, like we were saying with the earlier poem, protract the process of connecting the dots so that the reader can have that, that start when the train is carrying rustling that they would have if they were reading the Russian. Mm. Yeah. This is in some ways kind of an arbitrary place to jump to, but it was the first thing where I was like, I have a question for the translator. In the last stanza, <laughs> it says, just believe that in the terminal quiet after people shed their shoulder boards and forget that they speak different languages, nothing matters except having clean hands. Terminal quiet is great. And it's great because it's both a railway terminal and also because it's going to keep going for, you know, indefinitely. And I had this flash of a thought where I thought, oh, I wonder if that exists in Russian. And then I thought, well, it's very possible that it does for the sole reason that the reason a train station is called a terminal is because it has that meaning of it's an end point. And we you know, call something yeah. a terminal condition if it's going to keep going until the end. So it's, it's entirely possible that there's a, a similar thing embedded in the language there. But I, I, I need to know. Yeah. That, uh, that pun does exist in the Russian. And puns are the bane of a translator's existence, (laughs) both trying to translate them and accidentally adding puns to your translation. (laughs) Yeah. There was a a novel my co-translator and I were working on that had a plot dealing with the uh, the black market organ trade, and for some reason that entire chapter, there were so many phrases that we could only translate by using body images which we couldn't use (laughs) like a character was saying something that we wanted to translate as cut off your nose to spite your face but we could not because it was an accidental pun no if i if i could wreak physical bloody revenge on the concept of puns as a translator i would love to but this is one moment where a pun exists in both languages so I, i did a little dance around my desk when i got to use the same pun the two things that makes me think about are like, one, how what we often think of as puns, there's a very related phenomenon that just happens in the sort of use of language in poetry more generally, which is that sometimes words are sort of drawn from a certain discourse and using them calls that to mind. So it makes me think about how throughout this poem, there is a sort of logic of pun in the fact that so much m- like military and war imagery is being used in situations that are really banal, which is licensed by the fact that we do that all the time. 
So like, you know, talking about a truce or containing powder with the idea of ignition, like these are things that I think very effortlessly sort of suggest a kind of military register, even though like there's a everyday life version of them that we also can sort of engage with. And then what that makes me think about is how often the sort of cascading side effects of puns uh, have to do with tone shifts, which is something that we haven't talked about a whole lot, but I would imagine is a really serious part of a translator's dilemma where you can imagine a, a, a story where having a pun on like cutting off your nose to spite your face with organ trade, if it was meant to be mordantly funny and kind of grotesque and, you know, deliberately morbid, then like you could imagine that being less damaging than if it's, you know, being played seriously and an unintentional pun could really ruin the sort of tone of a, of a scene. I know that it's also really difficult because I read so many submissions to open letter, keep sending them everybody. I know when I see (coughs) different puns like that show up in the poems, I, that's an immediate red flag for me where I go back and reread the poem because if it really sticks out, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face, that's such an Englishism that -hmm. it kind of lands very specifically. So it takes you out of the poem for a second, unless it's very carefully worked in and there's a very clear reason why it showed up. So sometimes, especially when you know you're reading translation, and it, this is a problem with reading multiple submissions and translation in a row, you become, you're very attuned to those like super Englishisms where it sounds a little unnatural when the rest of the mm-hmm. register kind of belongs to a different discourse or a different like set of signifying, right? So if the rest of the poem is about making egg rolls and suddenly you hear cut off your nose to spite your face, you're like, wait a second. What what cultural context am I operating within? And it kind of like throws you off for a second. I, I think that goes back to the point we were discussing earlier, the Emily Wilson's argument that a translation shouldn't strive for transparency. The question of whether or not you should use anglicisms that are very Englishy is related to the question of transparency. What it makes me think of is there's a hotly debated question among translators about when a character refers to a distance in kilometers and you're translating yeah. into American English, should you translate it as miles? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Because I, I, uh, I, I personally favor translating it into miles because there's something experiential about mm-hmm. that. I, I know what it means that I'm going someplace that's five miles away. I, I don't have that same experiential connection to kilometers, but people will immediately object to that. They'll say, well, this guy's Russian. He wouldn't be talking in terms of miles. To which I, as a translator, respond, he, he wouldn't be talking in English. He would be speaking in <laughs> Russian. He, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't be saying, I was on the subway all goddamn day. These offices were 10 miles apart. He'd be saying, yeah, this dien matalsa pagoda do. He's not, he's not speaking English. Yeah. Like, reasonable people can differ on this, of course. You know, both sides of that have, are making valid arguments. I mean, the, what that makes me think of is, like, the experiential argument makes perfect sense to me. And then the, the counterexample that I could think of is when people are, like, very clearly using made-up round numbers. So if someone says, like, oh, that must be, like, you know, 100 kilometers or something... The fact that it's so clearly a round number is part of the content of it that, like, this is clearly, like, fake estimation, and putting that into miles would then sort of throw that off. I can imagine how, like, all these sorts of weird... uh, Basically what I'm saying is, like, Isaac has a very difficult job, and I'm suddenly realizing that... (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, na- translators of 19th century Russian have an even harder job when people are speaking in verses. Yeah. Where you have you have a an, an illiterate peasant who's saying, "Could you take these hogs 7.33 repeating miles down the road?" <laughs> oh my god. It's it's just it's asking an awful lot of a translator to put the line under the three to indicate that it's a repeating <laughs> decimal. So one of the things that I'm really enjoying to go to get back to the poem. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good tangent there. Um, so one of the things I'm really enjoying about this... they'll come for the tangents, they'll stay for the poetry. <laughs> yeah, basically, there's a there's a question you raised, John, about uh, tone shifts. Yeah that I also want to touch on, because when you're working with Slavic languages, that's another recurring challenge, because uh, there are different registers of formal versus informal speech that are a lot more marked in Slavic languages than they are in English. Like, the, the best example of this is if you're riding the escalator on the Moscow metro and there's someone speaking on the loudspeaker their language is more different from the language of the people on the escalator than would be the case in the New York subway. Mm -hmm. So when you're translating bureaucratic speak from Russian into English, you have to hyper-crank up the bureaucratic flavor, or it'll be completely lost. Interesting. So in in, in this poem, uh, Sean, you pointed to mobilized versus demobilized. Uh In the Russian, that's not the word that's used. In the Russian says, you will. the train will take you to the point of assignment of one's soul or lack of soul. Uh-huh. Hmm. The, the point at which an official process will determine mm-hmm. one's soul or lack of soul. But this this not this this word that means determination or designation or like bureaucratic affixment is a strictly official word that doesn't exist in normal speech. Yeah. It, English doesn't really have resources like that to instantly mark this as bureaucratic speak. And English also has the problem of being the language that Linkin Park and Simple Plan songs are written in. <laughs> so one can't say one's absence of a soul in an English language yeah. poem. <laughs> so this presented a sort of double challenge. And that's why I settled on where one's soul will be mobilized or demobilized. Well, that also pings more within the structure of the poem so that you get um, these kind of onomatopoeic verbs that really work in the poem right so you have jangle like shell casing scattered right so you have the c and the c and scattered in casings and recruit um there's a very there's a very uh there's an onomatopoeic quality through most of the poem so when you get to mobilized and demobilized it has an interesting it has an interesting quality where it's both of a piece of some of the sounds we've heard before right you you see dazzled um but it also very much doesn't sound of the sounds we've just heard empty clang of metal accustomed to containing powder right you've got a lot of c's there mobilized and demobilized just doesn't have the same consonants that we've just been dealing consonants being repeated sounds of consonants not vowels we don't have that same sound system to kind of set us up there so yeah, that's interesting. And that's 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 the the crux of the poem that you're putting your finger on there, mm-hmm. because a lot of what this poem is concerned about is the difference between wartime speech and peacetime speech. And you can really notice this even among everyday people 
in Ukraine now. It's uh, people know military terminology that they didn't know before. Mm -hmm. When we're translating books, my co-translator and I will consult with native speakers, and one of the most frequent questions is, how familiar is this concept to you? So Mm -hmm. how marked is the fact that this word is being used? And after the war, you hear people saying, I didn't used to know what this term meant, but now I do. That's really striking because there's there are famous examples of terms that enter into common usage after World War II for this very reason. And it strikes me that what what you're contending with is like we've been talking about how the sort of valences or the significances of a word are related to the way that it's used. And that in dealing with a contemporary poem by a contemporary poet, that's very much a moving target. And that mm-hmm. in a, the case of, of a poem like this, that could be so completely central to the way that it's sort of constructing itself. So I don't want this to just turn into a list of me being like, like how did this work in translation? But clean hands in English is a sort of very common expression for the idea of morally having clean hands. And it's I think it's even used as a term for a sort of question in realpolitik about whether it's possible for politicians to have clean hands or whether they sort of inherently have to be involved in things that are immoral. Is that is there is there a, a similar sort of uh, idiom in in uh, in Russian that this is drawing on when it ends by saying nothing yes. matters except having clean hands? Wait, I'm not letting the translator speak yet. I want Sean and I to puzzle through that for a second and see how it works for us and our experience of the poem before the translator unveils his secret, because this okay. should still work for us. Yeah. Sorry. I'm. No, that's okay. that's a that's a that's a so, good idea. I had a question when we arrived a row when we arrived there too at the end of the poem, because I I'm, the switch to the italics of the last three lines plus the just believe at the end mm-hmm. of the first line of the last stanza are all in italics, so we get that's where we arrive in the terminal and it's quiet. So the onomatopoeia has started like dissolve like has kind of left the poem. The really obvious onomatopoeia has kind of left the poem. We're in the terminal. People are shedding their shoulder boards and forget that they speak different languages. Nothing matters except having clean hands. So we're at this like intense physicality after having this kind of abstract sound quality governing the rest of the poem. Yeah. Um, There's that double meaning available that Sean was just talking about having clean hands in the sense of like moral clean cleanliness, especially in times of war. I don't know. I was very curious. What did you, how did you kind of piece all of that together? I largely agree that like the poem is so interested in having seemingly intangible things take on a very tactile form to the extent that they can be carried. So like that opening move that Isaac was talking about of going from something being carried on a train to the rustling of newspapers, which is sort of immaterial. When we're thinking about both guilt and also social connection or social involvement is that it's something that you carry with you, even though it's sort of immaterial. It also strikes me that the lavatory sink on a train is a is like a private place, and that for most of it, we're, we seem to be in those areas of trains where you're sort of thrust together with strangers and you have to kind of make pleasantries and, you know, um, reduce tensions and so on. And then there's something sort of felicitous about the transition to this end moment when everyone is separated being the one place in a train where you're separate from each other. I'm not sure what shoulder boards are. I wasn't sure either. I think it's like when you have a really heavy bag, um, a really heavy backpack, 
and you have like you put like a board underneath it to kind of stiffen it up so that it stays in your bag kind of provides structure to a backpack it feels a little bit of an antiquated thing rather than like those like metal frames that you would put on a backpack i didn't know either uh, that was how I kind of like glossed it, given the war context. I agreed that it felt but like again, it was very physicality. For Sorry. me, it registered as something for carrying things and something that not only is for carrying things, but also its presence suggests the severity of what's being carried. So in other words, like I would imagine shoulder boards is like, as you say, something for allowing you to carry heavy things. And then that sort of register is like, it's very possible that this is, you know, referring to an item that's more common elsewhere um, or for, you know, people carrying certain kinds of things. Yeah. I, mean, yeah I, I found the ending to be to be really effective. Yeah, I did too. Quiet and physical was how I kind of like lost the ending after a lot of kind of moving and kind of like fumfering and sound. It was like very quiet and very physical, which I didn't have in the earlier parts even though we do have we are like we have a bit of foreshadowing in the second stanza first by the movement of his spotless hand then by the midday light of truce right except having clean hands so you do have some sort of sense that this is going to show up later although it's still a little bit confusing to me because sound and kind of disorderliness and dirtiness kind of become associated for me right the rustling of newspapers and all of these like shell casings scattering and like litter falling on the ground, the tickets falling onto the floor, the emptying of the pockets, right? It all feels like that's all associated with dirtiness, mm-hmm. um, which is very different than the cleanliness of like the body or the hand or the physicality or something like that. So the spotless hand is throwing me off a little bit in the middle of the second stanza. But I think it works because it's the only thing that seems clean. Yeah, I mean, I would, later. S- I would say that it's a poem that partially uh, activates the the classic messy versus dirty distinction where like clean hands has to do with dirtiness but there are other things in this that sort of don't suggest dirtiness so much as just sort of like messiness or like excess complexity you know um uh, etc etc it does feel as though um in a weird way the scene in a train terminal should be very loud and that the the quality of the quiet has to do with the sort of assumed relationships with other people what in one sense what this kind of captures for me is that when you're on a train or an airplane that's going between countries you're totally aware that it's possible that the people around you are not from the same place that you are because by Mm. definition you're all going to different places um and there is a weird way in which like often when i'm like right outside of an airport I assume that everyone around, like, let's say the Philadelphia airport, I assume that everyone around me must also be American. And then the closer I get to the the airplane itself, the more I'm aware of like, oh, right, everyone here is in the process of of not being where they're normally from. Uh, And so it's very likely that I'm in a space in which there are people from all over the place, not just all over America, but all over the world. And there is something about uh, the way that you comport yourself. I'd imagine, you know, supremely during wartime when you know that you're in a space with people who are not necessarily from the same you know area as you and a really obvious way in which that shows up is the way that you use language not just the sort of cautiousness with which you use it but also the way in which you depend on simplicity of expression or codedness of expression or what have you mm-hmm. let's let the translator back uh, in yeah. we do? this must have been torture <laughs> for you oh well it uh, it was was less torture than it could have been <laughs> because <laughs> uh, you you guys were re- 
<laughs> you you guys were reading the the poem very thoughtfully and and touching on some themes that I was desperate to express, and the fact that you guys were talking about them was very gratifying. The uh, the shoulder boards and the lavatory sink are touching on another idea that is the bane of every translator's existence, which is weird specificity. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one example of this would be in the novel I'm translating now, when Russian people are buying food at a grocery store, they're very comfortable with giving exact measurements of the weight of the food item that they're buying mm-hmm. in a way that in an, an, an American reader would not be familiar mm-hmm. with. So you just sound like a crazy person if you translate this in uh, translate it literally and use the same precision of measurement. Yeah. The other great example is there's a, an ancient Egyptian love poem that any person capable of reading the original will insist is the sexiest poem that's ever been written and this is on the authority of linguists and egyptologists who yeah so, who have a flair for the erotic as we all know <laughs> yeah so this is the sexiest poem ever written but nobody who can't read the original will ever find it sexy because the protagonist is wearing a garment that translates as loincloth yeah <laughs> Yeah, right. So it just it will it will not ever be sexy in English. It doesn't matter how well you translate yeah. it. Wine class aren't There's sexy a, in English. <laughs> that that's a problem that every translator has to grapple with. With shoulder boards, so shoulder boards are the part of a military uniform that's on the shoulder oh. that carries an insignia. Oh, of course. Aren't those called epaulets? Uh, epaulets are the fancy 19th century version. Shoulder boards are the more modern version. Mm. They're, they're actually the same word in Russian, but uh, these, these are, are shoulder boards and not epaulets. Yeah. Interesting. So I didn't want to say take off their uniforms because that would, that would have been way too on the nose. Mm-hmm. I, I contemplated doing insignia, but I worried that would be too abstract, so I tried to skirt between Scylla and Charybdis there with, with just going with shoulder boards. Mm. The, the lab, lavatory sink provokes a similar problem because the Russian is, is a word that's just uh, washstand is what you'd get if you Google translated it, mm-hmm. but it just means not a real sink. Mm. Like not not a bathroom or kitchen sink, just the thing in a train bathroom where you can wash yeah. your hands. Mm. So I went with lavatory sink to suggest that to the English reader because we'd say lavatory on a train or an or an airplane. It's more official. That worked. It's not an actual bathroom. That worked perfectly for me when I was imagining that sink. I was imagining the tiny sink, you know, in the yeah. in the train that like isn't isn't a real sink i never would have thought that weird like to make cramped that thing yeah yeah but you you definitely ushered me to the right scene yeah, so that's uh that's uh that's two instances of the same problem that were executed with different degrees of success as far as the readers were concerned so that's uh that's a moment of translation and practice right mm-hmm. there interesting yeah. So for you as a translator, hearing that we didn't get what you were going for with the shoulder boards, would you go back and revise that? Or are you going to like cut your losses and let the yeah, reader, I'm, like, let us have that, inc- like, let, ha- let us have that fallacy? I think I'm going to ask Alexei. I hope he listens to this and I'll be interested to hear what he mm-hmm. thinks. Because I, I, think, I think the issue is uniform is too on the nose, insignia is too abstract. An epaulette so is the wrong question... register because it's 
you have yeah. too many um, hard sounding words there. Epaulette would to Latinate, and it's not the right. It's not. Well, also contemporary post-Soviet soldiers don't wear anything that we would call an epaulette in right. English. Even even for people like me who didn't know that, who thought that shoulder boards and epaulettes were the same thing, I, th- I think it still makes sense to not use epaulette because epaulette suggests sort of like an officer or like it has those kinds of 19th century sorts of associations. Yeah, and there's nothing Napoleonic about the war in Ukraine, that's for sure. <laughs> So what are our parting shots about translation, guys? Thank you so much for letting us read that, Isaac, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you for giving it your attention. The moment with the soul being mobilized or demobilized, it was so remarkable because when I got to that, it was like a really wonderful moment of reading. And then to find out that you were producing effectively the same the same experience by different means because you had no other option was, I mean, it was really remarkable. Mm-hmm. What you describe the Russian as doing is like comparable to what I experienced when I was reading the English, but the means by which you get there are necessarily different. That was in some ways the moment that sort of most encapsulated the, the kind of like the challenge of translation. The same experience by different means. If, if I were a house in game of Thrones, that would be my words. <laughs> the same experience by different means. That's, that's the function of a translator. Yeah. House Isaac. House Stackhouse Wheeler. House Stackhouse. House Stackhouse. Yeah, that does actually work. Sigil, a cup of coffee with Irish whiskey in it. Words, the same experience by different means. I do feel like, inevitably, uh, when there are enough Game of Thrones spinoffs, one of them will have a House Stackhouse. They will. It's coming. (laughs) It'll be be founded by Missandei, the interpreter, when she arrives in Westeros. She'll be the first lady Stackhouse. <laughs> okay, I think this episode is definitely... Yeah, we've definitely, definitely devolved. We've gone we've way totally too far. Totally devolved. 